Greetings, Commanders, and welcome to this special broadcast from Lave Radio. I'm your host, Second Technician Fuzzer Forrester, and this episode we talk about the exciting community event that occurred over the past weekend, namely the final chapter in the life of one of Elite Dangerous' most famous fictional characters, Commander Salome, the ex-Imperial Senator Kahina Tajini Lorem, who first appeared in the official Elite book, Elite Reclamation. Salome's exploits and her involvement in the Formidine Rift conspiracy have been closely tracked by players and author Drew Wager alike as he tries to achieve the Herculean task of writing the next official elite novel, Premonition, based on the activities of the elite dangerous community. So in a nutshell, the climax of the Salome saga played out over the weekend with Salome and three other VIPs racing across space trying to deliver vital information to a safe haven. Some members of the elite player base set up as protectors, and others as hunters intent on her destruction. Over the course of two hours, a fantastic game of cat and mouse developed across the galaxy with a starting point of 46 Eridani and with a finishing point we think, we think of Tianisla. We say we think because six jumps out from the target destination, the convoy was betrayed and Salome was shot and killed by everyone's favorite Hogwarts pupil, Harry Potter. So to discuss this tonight, we have Head of Station Archives, Mr. Colin Ford. Good evening, everybody. And Head of Health and Safety, Mr. Ben Moss Woodward. Now just make sure you behave yourself tonight. Yeah, don't we always. And as special guest to the show, we also have... Commander Eisen from the Children of Rexler. And Commander Baroness Galaxy, also from the Children of Rexler. And Commander Paroxum, I am one of the pack admirals. Welcome guys, welcome to the show, welcome to Ben and Colin. Uh, in an unusual show, um, because it's been quite an unusual weekend... Uh, there's been there's been fun, there's been hilarity, there's been betrayal, there's been tears, there's been lots of salty tears. So we couldn't just sort of uh, leave it to a normal show to cover all the things that have been going on. We have to have a special broadcast. So Colin, I'm going to bring you in straight away because I know that you've actually just done a Top Shift episode on this. Um, <laughs> what have been your thoughts on how things have played out? Well, um, let's see. I, w- I was involved in it for most of it up until like two minutes before it all kicked off. I followed it all when it was unfolding, and I'm afraid to say, uh, judging by the reaction, it was it was a victory for the people who wanted the plot to go forward. But I think for a lot of people, there's, there's been a lot of, as you say, salt, especially if you've been following Reddit. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the best post I saw about the event so far is, this is why we can't have nice things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly what I say to my kids when they've uh, when they've been misbehaving and doing stuff they shouldn't have. Um, ben, how did you get involved in the in the um, in the event? How have you been following it? I've only been able to follow it vicariously, I'm afraid. It's with it being the bank holiday weekend. I've been spending all my time with my family right up until about two hours before the start of this show. Okay, so you, you like me, you've kind of been uh, sort of removed from it. I've been away all weekend and obviously just came back today and uh, seen that the whole internet of Elite Dangerous has turned itself upside down. Um, so that is, of course, why we have to bring in some, uh, some ringers to the show, to say the least. It's nice that we've managed to get uh, Commander Eisen and uh, the Baroness on the show because they've actually been part of the, the Children of Raxler. Now... Guys, maybe you wanted to sort of chip in here and tell us why the children of Raxa were so important to this weekend. I think you can explain that, I think. Yeah, sure. Um, I think um, the most important thing is that she, we adopted her as our leader. And uh, so um, for us, it was um, 
prime directive that she survives and um, we did so much to prepare for that and um, ultimately it didn't play out well. Yeah, absolutely not. Thank you very much. So, guys, for those people that haven't had uh, any sort of background with the with the children of Raxley, you say that Salome was your your leader. Can you give us a bit of a, uh, an overview, just very very briefly, as to to what the children of Raxley actually stand for and where you guys came from? Yeah, sure. It's um, I think it is. Um we were founded um, about one and a half years ago. It was the time when the game was still in its infancy and a lot of people were um, going out um, to a place that is now called the Formula and Rift. And I think you know about the first novel um, uh, that Drew Vega wrote, Reclamation, and um, there was some small hint about Formula and Rift uh, in there and um, so people started going there and then Frontier at one point dropped the story and um, so those who had in themselves involved a lot um, didn't know what to do and um, then they just um, at one point uh, founded a group that was at a later point named the Children of Raxler and that was when it all started. Cool and the Children of Raxler from uh, having a quick look at your uh, your website you're all about the uh, the peaceful co habitation and uh, interaction with all all life in the galaxy, be it alien or human or everything else, yes? Yeah, yeah, you can say that. And um, we are peaceful explorers. Um, we always have been. And this thing that uh, happened this weekend uh, was uh, <laughs> probably against everything um, that people um, who are, have joined our group stand for. But uh, we didn't have a, another chance. We had to protect, protect her. Okay, well, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting point in itself in terms of uh, the way that Elite Dangerous has spun off and how we've got certain certain guilds, certain factions uh, within the player base. So as I say, you guys were explorers, you were a peaceful uh, group, and yet you were assigned to be the, you know, the close wing, the bodyguards to uh, Salome. So first of all, how did you get that job? And how did you go about preparing to do what was completely out of your nature? Yeah, I think the um, the point is that um, uh, when the Children of Raxor were founded, um, that um, well, we got into contact with Drew, and um, namely it was Eremus, who um, was one of the original founders of the group, who stayed in contact with Drew, and um, so um, we adopted Salome as our leader, and um, uh, over the time um, she sort of gave us um, directives that we were about to, were to follow and do this exploration missions to the Formidian Rift and um, set up listening posts there, which we did last year and um, uh, explore the EFOT sector and set up an exposition to um, to this point of the galaxy. So um, we have always been involved with um, Drew and um, I think um, the point was that um, she was our leader and um, so he assigned us um, to organize or to help organize this event. So what did you do? Because I can't imagine that if uh... You know, no offense meant, but a bunch of explorers were never going to make the best uh, PvP combaters. Uh, so you must have had to do a lot of preparation and uh, drilling, I would imagine, to get yourselves fighting fit. Yeah, I think Baroness can answer that. Um, I'll try. Yeah, there was indeed a whole bunch of preparation going. Uh, like, I think when I joined uh, more than easily, more than a month, um, there was a whole schedule being set up to do basically almost daily trainings. And when I looked at that for the first time, I was completely nervous because I had no clue and probably with me a lot of people. Um, and yeah, of course, people put their name on there still, even though they didn't have a clue because um, there was one thing that was certain that was, you know, a common goal. People were very eager and I was, I was 
just one of many at that point, I think. And we just had to find out a lot of things for ourselves. And actually, that's what we did. So it sounds maybe daunting and it sounds maybe like a BVP um, get good guys against uh, explorers <laughs> that will never get there. But actually, what happens in reality is that... Um, Creativity can go a very long way. No, absolutely. And uh, you guys so very, very nearly did it. You very, very nearly got it to the end. Now, obviously, you weren't doing it alone. And I'm going to bring uh, Oxy in here because, uh, Oxy, you represent the uh, the PAX group. Tell us a little bit about the PAX group and how they differ from the uh, the children of Raxler. Yeah, okay. So PAX was essentially uh, just a giant conglomerate made up of volunteers from literally every variation of background you can think of from elite's player base. So like we had like myself, you know, I'm, you know, part of the Paladin Consortium. You know, we had people from literally everything we had, we were mixing Alliance, Imperial and Federation all in one big group. And it, it created a very interesting dynamic for us. And yeah, it was all about mutual cooperation to get what we wanted. And for us, what we wanted was the truth. You know, we wanted what Salome and her friends knew. That's, that's pretty much what PAC was all about. And obviously, I mean, looking at the the last sort of numbers that I've had I've seen on uh, most of the reports on this, we're talking about an involvement within the player base of around about 3,000 people. Now, how the heck does a conglomerate like that like the pack like the the premonition allied coordinate uh, coordination how do you organize that many people to all be pointing in the same direction the easy way to put that is it's like herding cats <laughs> um it's very difficult and it was even more difficult than normal because there was so much secrecy surrounding a lot of the finer details and things that we just you know we, we were unable to just throw out all the information and have people just kind of go and do it. So you've got a lot of people asking a thousand questions all the time and none of them, you know, we couldn't really answer most of them without either giving away what little we knew or, you know, compromising the mission altogether. So it was, it was very difficult and relied a lot on people just, uh, just kind of doing as they were told, when they were told, which you know, really sucks and isn't that much fun, but at the same time, it's kind of what was necessary at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And do you guys, uh, well, let's just ask yourself, Oxy, do you have a background in sort of the metagaming element from, say, other uh, online, um, massively multiplayer online games, such as EVE Online or anything like that? Uh, never with EVE. I played World of Warcraft years ago and did a little bit of raiding with that, so I, eh, does it translate directly? No. Uh, I do have a background with the military in real life. So for me personally, that helps a lot. <laughs> and with the Paladin Consortium, we do PvP on a regular basis. A lot of it internal, but we will be at CGs fighting against SDC and some other groups you know, on a fairly regular basis. So over time... You know, we have gotten some pretty decent experience with uh, working with fleet mechanics and organizing people inside of Elite's mechanics. Okay, well, maybe we'll come on to uh, the mechanics side of this whole event uh, a little bit later on in the show because it's an interesting it's an interesting first step for uh, Elite Dangerous in terms of trying to get the the player base involved in it 
you know, in a situation that involves just so many players trying to do the same thing at the same time. But um, Eisen, what's been your experience of it? Yeah, first I wanted to add uh, something to Paroxysm's, um, um, what he said. Um, uh, we, I think we only set up um, the PAX server two and a half weeks ago or three weeks ago, <laughs> not longer. And, and uh, we originally planned to um, organize it all on the COR server. But uh, when we, we saw how many people wanted to get involved, um, it was just too much for us um, to organize. And um, that's the main reason that uh, I set up the um, PAC server and then invited um, uh, the, the groups that, um, that wanted to, to help and take part in it and um, that's the reason why uh, there was a different server and there was the pack server and my experience um, with organizing this it was just awesome and it was much more um, than the two hours that uh, the event uh, unfolded and i think the many people in cor uh, will remember that forever this experience just organizing this and um, what i realized was um, how many decent people um, we have in the game and people who come from different backgrounds and um, have so many skills um, to organize an event like this. Okay, so before we go on to you know, the good versus bad or the one side of the coin versus the other side of the coin, uh, maybe you can just give us a, a quick sort of breakdown as to what took place over those two hours for those people that haven't been following the story. How did it all unfold? From the um, from the perspective of the primary wing with Salome? Yes, please. Yeah, okay. Well, um, we met in uh, 46 Eridani. We traveled there in a solo or private group. And then um, at uh, 6 p.m. we um, logged on and winged up. And then it, um, it uh, started. And um, we had um, kind of a route and waypoints um, set. And um, we started with a J3 jump out of 46 Eridani to um, avoid um, eventually camped systems around this um, this place. And then we started buggyballing, which um, worked more or less well. <laughs> of course, um, the plan was to buckyball the whole route um, maximum time in the system 50 seconds or 55 seconds to give nobody a chance to interdict. But um, um, when uh, the event unfolded, um, we realized that this was, was not possible because um, Drew's ship um, had, from the beginning, had problems and he was um, interdicted um, quite often and he had to do emergency drops and he overheated. And so at some point, um, his um, modules were fried and he got malfunctions and um, all those kind of stuff. And uh, finally, when we reached the bubble and uh, were six jumps uh, away, yeah, Harry Potter caught up. So, I mean, I, looking at the, the stuff that, that, that Drew's posted, uh, obviously Harry Potter from the SDC got the got the final shot and did the uh, did the deed, as it were, taking down Salome. But uh, Drew said that it wasn't just Harry Potter; it was a, a combination of factors and lots of other people, you know, taking chunks out of him and, as you say, the forced missed jumps and everything else and all the interdictions that had a, a cumulative effect on Salome's ship. Um, yeah. But that obviously Harry Potter put the final nail in the. Yeah, in the in the box. From my perspective, he just was uh, got lucky in this system because um, uh, when we entered the system, Salome was was again having problems to jump out, and when uh, he interdicted, um, what happened was the wing broke up. I was kicked from the game, and my my colleague Isaiah, who um, was in the wing too, um, he had 
said Wingman Navlock, and then he uh, saw a blue tunnel for two minutes or so. Oh, and right. while that was happening, Harry Potter had the time of his life. <laughs> he <laughs> just shoot, shoot her, and um, nobody of us can could do anything. Okay, just because I'm, I'm going to name and shame Drew on this point. Did, did Drew turn up for any of the training sessions? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess he might be one of his boys on the. If he if he survived for very long, I'm guessing it's one of his kids on the uh, on the controller. Uh, but uh, Baroness, I'm going to bring you in here. What what have you got to add? Yeah, I mean, uh, what Eisen says is is uh, factually correct, of course. The the fact that Harry Potter got um, got the kill uh, six jumps away is was of course pure interesting coincidence. Um, what happened in that one hour 45 minutes before was just from basically the first jump on a uh, complete um, focus that needed to happen because from the moment we started and jumping out immediately I heard Isaiah saying things like uh, contact, contact and enemy so we had to basically put all our training of weeks and weeks and weeks which of course you do in a, in a certain way water casually um, you have to immediately um, make sure that nothing goes wrong and of course that's not the case i mean things do go wrong actually they went wrong in the beginning a little bit because we had to find out okay we need to go faster um shields for example had the sole duty of always being in the same system as the vip as salome and always trying to be in the same instance we worked out ways to increase the chances of that happening at some point, I, I think it was like a third of the of the route or something. Um, we we got into this this system of cooperation that it really started to come into our favor. Like so, the first part was really you know new and somewhat chaotic. People starting to interdicting Salome. There's a little bit of module damage, more module damage. You know, Drew starts to say things uh, like, uh, "Oh, it's 73 percent," and you start thinking, "Oh crap!" But um, at some point, all of that was actually out of the window because what you hear then instead through the comms is things like your shields saying, I'm in the same instance as the VIP, everything is safe. Or I'm in the same instance as the VIP, I see an enemy, I'm going for interdiction. And all I heard from, the, from that point on was actually uh, a very close cooperation between uh, not just shields, obviously, we had lots of scouts patrolling, uh, constantly reporting about the waypoints and the jumps ahead of the VIP, whether they were safe. Uh, we had the Reapers as well, of course, which were more combat-oriented, and the Daggers as well. Um, the point very simply is that the longer the journey lasted, uh, the more control we had. The funny thing is that <laughs> it is actually the interesting problem that happened six jumps away, because in a way it felt undeserved. Like, we... We basically already proven for more than an hour that we the police could do the job. Yeah. that we could do the job, and then and then to have that happen at the end is just yeah. I mean, when that happens, and Drew himself and everybody who is in the channel was as silent as a mouse because there's really nothing you can say really. I mean, at that moment you're just shaken, and especially I mean, take Isaiah. He was um, he was protecting Salome as as, you, as no one else could actually in my opinion. And he was doing it in a very, very professional way. And and then to, you know, have a navlock. I actually saw him do it in a video. He did it perfectly in terms of timing. And then have the navlock just, you know, 
screw you over. And, and then I saw the video from Harry Potter and those guys, yeah, they, they just went and had no clue. They just did their thing, but they had no clue what was really going on, of course, on the other side. Um, how how it really left um, through 50, 60, 70, 80 people um, and more, many, many more. No, absolutely. And it's, uh, I mean, it's interesting just listening to you uh, talk about it. You can hear that you know, the emotions are still quite raw for you guys. And that's something that was, comes across very clear across the Internet that whether or not the game was broken, whether or not the mechanics let it down, the, the emotion that people invested into this first sort of big meta event that we've had in, a, in Elite Dangerous, uh, it, it's clear that you, know, you love it or you loathe it. You know, people have really got on board with this idea and people are really heavily invested. And there were some genuine upsets when you know, it was broadcast that you know, Salome was, was, was killed, she wasn't going to get there, then that was the end. And, you know, there has been more of an outcry about this than anything that we've seen recently within the Elite Dangerous universe. Do you think that's warranted? I think it's more than warranted simply because I've seen so many people close and, and further away as well just go way beyond what they imagined of themselves that they could do. Um, you know, in the beginning, it's all like, okay, we have a mission. We have to defend Salome. How are we going to do it? And then you read some things about, okay, this is how we're supposed to do it. But you don't have the confidence yet. I mean, you don't have necessarily the practice yet or the habits. And then you reach at some point a stage where everybody, but literally everybody just knows that it's possible. And from that moment on, basically, there is no coming back. Because once you go on that route, you basically go all the way. And of course, if you go all the way, it also means that you're shattered all the way if it fails. Yeah, one thing that I noticed for, I mean, I was listening on the streams discreetly so that my wife and daughter wouldn't, over, wouldn't overhear me. But I was listening very uh, discreetly to what was happening. And when it was absolutely announced and we heard over the broadcast and you could tell that, you know, the absolute jaw drop of that moment that when it happened. And I'm afraid to say, I don't think people in the community now blame the children of Raxler for what happened. I think everybody now realizes how much of an effort you guys did put in. There was a whole lot of finger pointing and stuff going on right at the very beginning. Um, I think people now that they've actually heard the videos and, and seen the footage realize how much you put in. So I don't think there's there's any shame in, in, in having to, to deal with these kind of things. No, not at all. Oxy, what's your point on this? All right, as far as um, as far as the emotional impact goes, it's always tough for anyone who wants a positive outcome to see uh, a character or person they believe in fail in some way. And that's especially true in this case, because there are so many people that were huge fans of Salome. And there are so many people that were emotionally invested in getting her to where she wanted to be that I, I honestly think that this, you know, this this fallout after, you know, after she was killed was to be expected and is to a certain extent justified because of the attachment and belief that people had in her. And I think it's even compounded more so just by the way it happened at the end. And I mean, it's just kind of you know the nature of the beast with this. It really does suck, but it's it's the emotional investment in the thing itself that made it what it is. And that's also one of the reasons why this event was as great and as important as it was. No, absolutely. Um, and talking about, let's talk about a couple of things around this as well. Some of the the other stuff that's being reported in terms of the you know, emotional fallout from it and some of the um, some of the complaints leveled at it. Obviously, yeah, the mechanics will come on to in terms of where they, they sort of fell down and what current state the Elite Dangerous game's in. But, um, Baroness, you 
talked about how uh, you had shields and they would go in ahead of the VIP and they would identify who was uh, who was an enemy and interdict the enemies and stuff. There's been some reports about the, I think it was actually mainly aimed at the, the pack crew uh, being a little bit heavy handed on going out and, and clearing out all the uh, surrounding systems and shooting on site regardless of whether or not people are either involved in the, the community event or you know, knew what was going on or didn't have weapons or, or whatnot. Oxy, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Have you picked up on any of that? Uh, repeat that just a little bit for me so I can make sure I'm catching everything. So reports that the PAX group were a little bit heavy-handed in terms of just going out and, and wiping everybody out that was in the surrounding um, uh, systems and being maybe a little bit heavy-handed with it. The bare share of that is something of a misunderstanding, and it's also it's also dependent on exactly where you were in relation to in in relation to the path. For instance, like internally, you know, we decided to disarm our the bare share of our people, and that was it. It served sev- several purposes. The first of which was a way to identify friend from foe, because you can't just rely on memory to tell you, especially when it got to be, you know, three thousand people were trying to coordinate. Yeah, you know, there was going to be a lot of people dropping in and out, and you can't. You know, alt tab and go check your IFF bot every five seconds, and 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 that became doubly true when the bot had so many queries inside of ninety seconds that it actually crashed and refused to come back online. As a matter of fact, even today, even right this second, it's still not back online. So we needed a way to quickly identify you know someone's intention, and that was the easiest way to do it. I also typed out a specific set of general orders that my fleet was to follow that also enabled people that were equipped with weapons that uh, weren't part of pack to actually be in system with us in a peaceful manner so long as they complied with what they were being told basically what it was was setting up a couple of borders inside the system where armed people would stay outside of that border and if they crossed it with a vip in system that's how we knew what their intent was if they had stayed in system and on the other side of that border they would have been able to respond to hostile intent with the rest of us without actually showing hostile intent themselves and that was pure plain and simple the entire idea behind the way i laid out my strategy everyone would have been involved even the people that weren't in pack but there was a lot of resistance to that idea and i can understand why because you know when an event is this large and people all want to get involved it's tough to just kind of you know bow to the will of a group bigger than yourself or your small group of friends. And the behavior as far as in the Discord channels themselves, when you have that many people, it's very difficult to police it. I'm just going to throw that out there. And a lot of the people that were causing issues internally were on both sides of the fence. I mean, when we start bringing up, quote unquote, toxic behavior on both sides, I'm going to say both parties are equally guilty. And a lot of the people on the PAC side of things that were doing that are and were also 
hardcore PvPers. And pretty much all of us know that their general attitude is usually somewhat abrasive. And as much as it rubs people the wrong way, when it does come to something as large as this, sometimes, you know, your own personal feelings need to take a back seat for a few minutes so people can you know, get the point across. And then sometimes, you know, take just a few minutes to think about things before responding, because then, you know, everyone gets along just a lot better. And the actual point that people are trying to make comes out instead of um, just emotional reactions. And as I said earlier, there was a lot of emotional investment in this. So on both sides of the fence, was there going to be overreactions? Absolutely. I'm not sure that it was avoidable in any way. Yeah, well, I think I got firsthand experience of the have no weapons rule. Um, when I was preparing the previous night. Uh, if I think, remember, there was a, a false flag in the T-Taurus system. Someone had uh, a same commander name as one of the VIPs, so everyone ran there. <laughs> the problem was that I was heading there to disarm my weapons, and then I got jumped by a certain, let's call him Twatty Slaughter, uh, and completely wiped out. So you can imagine... If that happens to you and you're there thinking, what the hell have I done? It doesn't go, it doesn't go down very well. And the, the main problem that I think this highlights is if the Frontier want to do more events like this, they kind of need a, a, some kind of friend and foe or choose your own side mechanic. Now, they've got that already with the combat zones. I think possibly for the next one, they might have to look at putting it in for a galaxy-wide event. They were able to do that with the multi-crew. So it's a possibility for for the future, I think. We did notice that they added the multi-crew option that um, for the most part, we were trying to avoid using multi-crew as it does cause in, especially when there's this many people in one spot, it can cause some very interesting instancing issues. And as we know, instancing was already the enemy of the entire event to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll go on to mechanics in uh, a second. But before we do, Baroness, did you have something you wanted to add? Uh, yeah, about the Fender and Foe. Um, actually, this, this conversation reminds me of something very nice that I experienced during the the journey of um, protecting Salome, which was from in the beginning, you saw a lot of a lot of commanders in each system that you jumped in, you know, enemies, fans. And it very often happened that people started typing in chat. I, I'm trying to bucket ball, so I don't have much time to look at it, but... Every now and then I did, and then either you saw one of two things happening. So either enemies saying, oh, wow, it's a second Salome, ignore another one. Because what we did, of course, is we um, we tried to uh, use the Defender Foe system in our advantage by basically having several clippers, or even other ships and clippers, use the same name as Salome ship, which is a seven veils, which worked. Because some, some of them just look at it and they get delayed because of it. And what you also saw is friends, uh, people that, you know, try to protect Salome, type in chat and recognize, you know, what you're doing and they're supporting you out loud. It's almost like you're jumping from one system to another and you see supporters on the on the left or on the right cheering at you just because of, you know, them recognizing you're using that name and you're using it in um, in a way that uh, they know, okay, this, this, this might actually work. And by the way, it did. Uh, it for sure worked. Just trying to say that even though we were limited in the options of Fender Foe, there was ship naming there involved, and it did uh, it did help as well. Okay, so I mean, I think this has also been something that we can we can shout out in terms of the fact that, as always within Elite Dangerous, because the system is obviously not set up completely for this sort of thing. Player base uh, go around and they try and find exploits and ways to 
use the system to you know, our advantage, such as you know, the ship naming thing. Let's bring it round to you know, one of the big points about this. It was, well, it certainly created a stir. Whether or not you would say it was a success, it certainly, yeah, it certainly moved the plot forward. It certainly got a lot of people talking about Elite Dangerous. It certainly got a lot of people looking forward to um, the uh, next Premonition book. Although some people are now throwing their toys out of the pram saying they're definitely never going to read it. But I think that might calm down in the next couple of days or weeks. But let's talk about where the game is currently sat in terms of trying to do these big uh, World of Warcraft, EVE Online, massive uh, player events, these uh, these meta events. You said, Eisen, that it was actually it was the downfall of instancing, that long blue tunnel between star systems that possibly was actually the... Uh, the final straw for Solomon. Just talk us through that. What sort of issues were you guys encountering within the game mechanics that uh, that hampered the uh, the event? Yeah, well, um, it started um, when we left uh, 46 Eridani, and um, I think Drew had um, several um, um, client crashes direct at, directly at the beginning, and he had to reload the game, and um, we had to wing up again and um, start start over, and um, then while we were bucky-balling, everything worked fine, and uh, we got instanced with friends and got instanced with um, with enemies. And um, so I think the first hour or first and a half hours uh, were working quite well, despite the um, the game crashes and the client crashes that Drew experienced. But I already explained that um, in the last system, everything went wrong at the same time. So that was quite quite heavy for us. So when you say it went, went wrong, um, Drew appeared without any friends whatsoever to protect him. You guys had just sort of vanished One what, was it a client crash? Just stuck between systems? What actually happened? We jumped into the system um, as uh, as a wing and um, we were four people and um, Drew was one of them. And um, so Drew said, I can jump, I have a malfunction again. And then Potter appeared and um, somebody was saying, oh, he's going to interdict. And, and then um, uh, the interdiction happened. And at that moment, um, I was kicked out of the game. I saw a black screen and um, then uh, Isaiah tried to turn around and navlock on Salome and um, he got dropped 50 light seconds away from her, which is not supposed to happen. If someone navlocks, um, he's supposed to drop in the same instance um, in normal space. And so he uh, rebooted his um, his frameshift drive and um, uh, got stuck in the blue tunnel. And um, that took him one or two minutes. And when he finally um, could drop again, uh, Salome was uh, already dying. So that gave Potter the time uh, he needed. And how long did it take him to actually finish uh, Salome off? I think, uh, yeah, from my recollection, two minutes or so, one or two minutes. But wow. but I don't know for sure. At that time, I was uh, frantically um, uh, ki- kill, kicking the killing the instance, uh, killing the the, the game yeah. client, and uh, re- reloading the game. And uh, yeah. <laughs> trying to get in again. And by the way, Isaiah wasn't the only one because I remember there were a few shields that immediately reported that they were on it and that they were also in the same instance and uh, went into the wake and so forth and whatnot. But um, they also had tunneling issues. So it's not so easy. I even saw the video afterwards from, uh, I think it was Isaiah indeed, where you, because you have to pay attention how you navlock and he did it perfectly. Uh, he, he waited until Drew dropped and then he presses the navlock button and then he's got stuck. So stuck into um, another location in the space where I shouldn't be. And then you know, of course, yeah, if that happens, there's nothing you can do anymore. So obviously, I mean, we're focusing very much here on uh, Salome, but um, there were other VIPs. What happened to them? Well, they all, they all got through. <laughs> 
So <laughs> nobody focused. I, I saw some um, some chatter with the the Xbox crew that uh, they they had a VIP. They had Yuri to protect, uh, and there was there was two thousand people on the Xbox, uh, or was it two hundred people set up to protect the VIP, and only thirty people set up to hunt him down. The rest of them made it, basically. Yeah, the rest I, of the, the rest of them made it, and because the rest of them made it, we got the information that we're now flying around uh, Torge collecting. If Salome had made it, I do believe Drew said that there was a little bit of an additional content, but nothing that really would have changed the the outcome. Initially, there was a whole load of reports that we didn't, we wouldn't get all the information, but it turns out it was just a speech, which wouldn't have moved the plot on anything. Okay, fine. So, I mean, that was that was going to be my uh, my next point. So, what would the ramifications be within the yeah, within the novel itself about uh, this well-known character sort of uh, biting the dust. I think Drew has, has indicated that, yes, the, the story has obviously changed from what he was hoping for, and the players have gone and changed changed the plot. Initially, the whole premise of what the Fordermine Rift, Rift was all about is, um, is now out in the open, which is what the whole point of Premonition was. It's just going to change, effectively, the last chapter. Okay, and I know from reading uh, Drew's uh, recent blog post, he did have uh, he did have precautions set in there in case there was something dramatic that happened in terms of Salome's death and being done by a character that he probably couldn't put in his book. So are we to assume that Harry Potter is not going to show up in Premonition? What do you reckon, Ben? So he's going to appear in Drew's book as Besieger, not as a copyright infringing character name. Yeah, a, p- a potential lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. I'm not entirely sure if you can copyright the name Harry Potter. I'm sure it probably is, but there must be a lot of Harry Potters out there that uh, can't be walking around infringing a <laughs> infringing a copyright just by being alive. Still not a good idea, I suspect. <laughs> probably not. I think the important thing for this, though, is that Salome is now a martyr. So, from in terms of the law perspective, now instead of some wanted fugitive, she died on the altar of her beliefs and all that. And that's a much more powerful character for the future to look back on than yeah, absolutely. some naughty girl who you know needs to get a good spanking. What now there, there was there, there was a little bit of a twist on uh, to this which has has got the speculation going and I don't know whether the children of Raxilla well the, the children of Raxilla probably know what I'm going on going on about. Um, Yuri transferred an escape pod when he got to where he needed to go. It's been recorded so that got a whole lot of tongues wagging thinking oh perhaps she isn't but Drew has said that she is no more. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what they've got to say about that. But uh, Eisen, you got anything to add on that? Yeah, sure. I think um, that was just to tease um, to tease people. And um, uh, Drew had made it clear from the beginning that she was in Iron Man mode, and uh, if she died, she died, and um, that that's it. <laughs> so yeah, it just brought back memories of of Rocky. Um, Rocky, Rocky Four. <laughs> if he dies, he dies. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, and there was. Um, in terms of a plot and in terms of it being a really sort of gripping story and obviously the portrayal uh, I know Drew has said on his blog that you know he's not that good to be able to get it so that uh, it makes for a very good sort of climactic ending for his book um, by getting everybody involved in terms of the player base and getting them to sort of react to his his wanton whims but uh, people have suggested that you know it was orchestrated so that she was going to die and certainly you know the fact that it was sort of technical issues that didn't help at the end do you think there's any sort of any sort of credence to any of those that it was uh, frontier behind the scenes 
Andrew sort of orchestrating that this was the way it was supposed to pay out? I have first-hand experience um, in the in the prime wing, and uh, uh, it felt in no way as a setup. It was uh, so intense those minutes, and um, I, I think nobody could could have planned this. No, I mean uh, I'm inclined to agree. Okay, so I mean, what next for for Elite Dangerous? If they were going to do another one of these, we've already said. Um, Obviously, the client clashes you can try, crashes you can try and sort of fix up a friend and foe mechanic. What else would enable a large-scale event like this to uh, to go off without a hitch next time? Any ideas for anybody, Colin? Oh, right. Just throw the big one at me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, some kind of organisation tool, um, you know, military structure, that kind of thing. I mean, we've got rankings in place for, for um, obviously, the big two militaries for the Empire and the and the Federation. Perhaps something could be worked around that. But at the moment in time, with what with the tools that the that Pack and uh, the children of Raxler had available to them, I think they did a great job. It's just I really did feel that sometimes that the uh, the rather more enthusiastic PVPers did manage to intimidate a little anybody who wanted to come along that didn't fit their profile. I think what needs to be really done, I think, for the next one, if there is one, is definitely this friend or foe thing. So once you've made your pledge, that's it. You've stuck with it until the event's over and you can't change sides. Ooh, interesting. So you completely sort of wipe out what the... uh the smiling dog crew did in terms of the betrayal, which I mean brings us on to quite an interesting point of the whole event, which I'm going to throw over to Oxy in just a second. It's about the fact that you know the smiling dog crew were part of the protectorate; they were part of the pack group. Uh, most people raised an eyebrow somewhat when they saw the smiling dog crew, the you know the serial sort of uh, exploiters, breakers, griefers, call them what you will, managed to find a way of getting themselves on the protector side of um of this whole event and you know people have said you know well we could have we could have told you that at the start um oxy what do you say to those people first off we didn't really trust them whatsoever and i actually banned them from the discord within the first few minutes when they first appeared it was a while later actually when they started to come back after a lot of discussion between some of the top level core people and the admirals we didn't trust them from the get-go even after we let them back in i think that's one thing that really needs to be stressed is that they didn't have access to anything beyond what anyone else joining the pack server had. They had one lieutenant, but even the lieutenants didn't have access to anything that was actually particularly special. The only thing that they had access to was being able to talk to other lieutenants and the admirals in a channel that the regular people didn't have. That was it. So as far as you know, trusting them goes, absolutely not. Straight from the start, with my fleet especially, because mine had the bare share of all the PVPers, I built in a kind of an Order 66 protocol, if you will, into my fleet orders that was given specifically to my PVPers. We didn't really get much of a chance to use it the way we wanted to because Salome didn't actually end up where we thought she was going to be. So our PVPers were 200 light years away you know, when we actually found out and figured out what was going on. Did we trust SDC? Absolutely not. I had 70 PVPers, roughly, that were ready to blow SDC, Code, and others out of the stars. They were just waiting for the order. That's pretty much it. As far as that goes, there was no level of trust. We expected a betrayal and even built in 
a contingency into my fleet orders just for that situation. I love the fact that you had an Order 66 for that. I think that's brilliant. Anybody that doesn't know what an Order 66 is, obviously look up your Star Wars fiction. Okay, uh, Baroness, uh, you wanted to add on there? Sorry, not Baroness, sorry. Eisen, you wanted to add something about uh, friend and foe on there? Yeah, you were talking about uh, technical methods to uh, in, in get a friend and foe system into the game, but um, I, I would just want to ask, um, how can anybody prevent um, that one of, of the people who pledged for friend just turns around and kills you? And uh, that's what you can do if uh, if you sign up in, in a combat zone, you can turn on your friends. And um, that's I think it's virtually impossible to uh, implement a friend and foe system that's reliable. Well, the only the only issue was I think that the um, and it has to be highlighted is was the order for no weapons or anybody who has weapons in the system to uh, to be immediately destroyed because I, th- I think that um, threw a lot of people who were coming late to the whole thing and turned against the pack. That that's one the one big thing I think that everybody who felt excluded from the event is saying and the, the main f- point of the friend or foe system would be that hang on a second you would people would be able to have the have their weapons so that you know I mean yes you, you're quite right you can't put functions in that will stop people stabbing you in the back but the, that friend or foe thing would have helped ease a lot of the tension that would have that came around from using the no weapons system yeah And I tried to alleviate some of that as much as I could with the orders that I gave to my fleet. Because even if a person was a complete unknown, um, my fleet and the way I had my orders set up, if a weaponized ship dropped into system, any PvPers that were in there, you know, they were, one, they were too far away to be able to do anything right away. And two, the interdictors, the people I had close to the star, were supposed to check for the presence of weapons. And if they were, if they did have weapons, they'd be either asked to leave the system or they'd just get chain interdicted. They wouldn't actually be destroyed, at least not in my area. But if they jumped into the system, immediately turned away from the star, and followed instructions to go to a 1,000 light second boundary, we actually would have left them alone altogether. As long as they weren't showing hostile intent, they would have been ignored. And I think that's one message that got lost in a lot of the confusion over it. I just want to point one thing out, and that is actually that the whole system worked. eh? Everybody did a great job, if you think about it. What actually happened is, okay, at the end, instancing working against us, but for the same reason, Salami would have survived. So the cooperation between CR and, and PAX even though they got very limited information and it's definitely not easy for them to do and deal with and actually it did work out it just like the simple fact of life are you can't control everything what's going to happen the only issue that i have with that is that it did cause a barrier with um a lot of people who came along late i mean if you if you've seen the reddit or you're monitoring the reddit as it went as as the thing went along uh, there was an awful lot of anger aimed at both Pac and and yourselves for what was happening. And Drew himself was was he went on the the Pac server a couple of times saying that this event was supposed to be for everybody. And there's a lot of people who f- felt excluded by it. Well, it this is something that I guess will have to be learned for next time. I think it's a, actually your question is a question to Frontier rather because I think like 10 minutes ago. Or 15 minutes ago, the question was asked, you know, what what needs to be done feature-wise to support? Well, honestly, feature-wise, there are already a bunch of things that could be useful. You know, there's a peer-to-peer network. So mm-hmm. imagine having a peer-to-peer network with 3,000 people in one system. Well, it, it, oh, no, I'm, 
Yeah, but you can laugh about it, but it doesn't even work for 10 sometimes. No, or if that's it's exactly so, why I'm so, laughing. Yeah, well, I know. But the, the, so the question you ask is completely valid, but it is not a question we should ask or direct towards each other and start finding about. Because that's completely useless. It's a question you should ask Frontier, and not in an angry way, by the way. And because they are doing their best, don't forget the patch that they just did right before. Yeah, where they, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not blaming them at all. But we know that there is a peer-to-peer network. We know there are certain hardware things that need to be done and so forth and whatnot. So, okay, let's give them the time to do it. And let's be constructive and positive about it instead of starting to argue between ourselves. Because honestly, we are not the ones that can solve it. It's technically possible, but it will require patience and it will require good input from us as well. I mean, again, I am the complete layman when it comes to um, software and networking and everything else, but is it possible that Frontier can have a set of servers or um, you know, something in-house that they could just switch on um, and run a different thing? So instead of having peer-to-peer, you could, you could host these sort of events at Frontier Towers or on a certain set of uh, servers earmarked for large-scale events like this one? Very, very no. It completely would require them to rewrite their entire networking stack, unfortunately, Fozzer. Right, okay, so that's obviously out of the question. Yeah. So they have to work with the mechanics, the peer-to-peer network that they've uh, they've implemented from the start. Yeah, that's and that is the big issue, because um, if we go back to the whole point in of the peer-to-peer network, that is so that Elite Dangerous is actually possible. I've had, we've had a, a lot of uh, complaints about the fact it should be all uh, on Eve, where there's only one central instance or, or something like that. Yeah, single server, yeah. Yeah, the single server. And to tell you the truth, um, knowing the, the kind of infrastructure that would be required for Elite Dangerous, I don't think Frontier could afford it. We're, we're talking World of Warcraft type servers that which would be needed in order just to hold the player base that we've got at the moment. I so, mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but even World of Warcraft isn't a single shard, is it? There's, there's lots of different servers that run that and it's basically whichever server that you sign into you, you kind of stuck for you have to move your character from that server to another server if you want to play with your friends no but what i meant by that is that you need the capacity equivalent of world of warcraft to be able mm-hmm. to run it not not the singles the shard i don't think um eve servers wouldn't, wouldn't be able to handle elite dangerous because it is a twitch game yeah. I mean, there's a reason why we call Eve playing spreadsheets in space, because it isn't doing half of the stuff that Elite Dangerous is trying to do, unfortunately. Right, as I say, I, I'm not a coder, I'm not a network geek, so uh, I'll take your word on that, guys. Um, and I, I'm sure you're absolutely right in terms of um, in terms of the, the raw stuff that Elite Dangerous is trying to do. But no, I think Baroness makes a good point in terms of um, Frontier will definitely have been scrutinising this. You can guarantee that they will have been beers and popcorn and quite a lot of stress bunnies probably at Frontier Towers watching this event uh, unfold in real time and trying to make sure that the infrastructure held up as well as it possibly could do and yeah I'm sure somewhere there's a there's a wall with plans in about how they could possibly do this better in the future or you know how they can take these sort of large-scale events further you know as the as the game develops I mean they are talking about a 10-year plan so you know maybe some point down that timeline they've they've got an idea of how they might be able to do these sort of things whilst we're uh, just about to, to wrap up what was it all for what did we find out and are we happy to reveal it uh, in a spoiler-free manner what was the end point of this event Ben in a spoiler-free manner Um, well nothing you thought that you think you actually think is as close as I can think of 
<laughs> okay, well, with the spoiler, with the spoiler hashtag in front of this, if anybody doesn't want to be spoiled, with a spoiler hashtag in front of it, then I guess I would very quickly say that somebody somewhere is controlling everything that's above the alliance, above the federation, above you know, they're manipulating all these governments that are supposedly trying to control the populace. However they're doing it and why ever they're doing it, we just don't know. Bloody Illuminati, they get everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I blame TJ. <laughs> okay, uh, one final question to everybody before we do wrap this up and, and close down the broadcast. Um, let's uh, go around and see. Would you guys be up for another large event uh, like this one? Uh, Commander Eisen. Yeah, sure, but um, I think not too soon and um, hopefully not uh, to be organized by us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I can understand that. Baroness? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, we had a blast. Eh? It's very clear we had a blast, but we're also very, very tired right now. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Oxy, would you do it again? I'm kind of, I'm going to agree with Eisen, sure, but let's take a breather for a while and maybe add in a few new mechanics to make this simpler before we give this a second go. Okay, perfect. Well, this is going to roll on for a while, but that's it for this special broadcast of Lave Radio. A massive thank you to our guests, Commander Paroxymal, Oxy for short, Commander Baroness Galaxy, Commander Eisen, and of course, to the wonderful Ben and Colin. That's it for another episode of Lave Radio. Until next time, fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. Two seconds, I'll be right back.